Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. Good morning, church. How are we? Good, good. Good to see you this morning. A uh, quick little... Um, announcement for you and uh, we've always wondered kind of like what the capacity would be from a parking lot standpoint apparently we've reached it and so we've uh, every spot is filled out there and so um, one thing just to kind of throw out there you can also park along the side of the street down here as well as uh, the lot across of us kind of the, the whatever that business is next door to us and also the parking spot ahead so if you end up getting here and there's no more spots just know that there's those areas as well that, that you are free to park in also. So I thought we would maybe take a little bit longer to ever get to that point, but we reached it. So um, that's the parking situation going on outside. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, we're going to be in the book of James today, all right? Book of James. And uh, this is a new series that we kicked off last week as we... Uh, launched into our new series for the fall. And as you've heard me say in the past, uh, we typically do books of the Bible uh, from a preaching series. And we do one in the springtime, and then we also do one in the fall time. And so this is our fall kickoff uh, last week uh, as we are walking through the book of James. And, and we wanted to walk through the book of James as we kind of prayed about it over the last six months or so, uh, primarily because of a couple of things. One, James is one of the least theological books of the entire New Testament. And that's not to mean that we're like, oh, let's do that because it's not theological. Um, it's because we do tend to land very theological in what we preach and what we teach in our classes and in our conversations that we have, discussions that we have in groups. Uh, James is one where he's not necessarily worried about what you believe but whether or not you're practicing what you believe, whether or not you're practicing what you preach. And so both James and, and Philemon and Jude are really a couple of the books in the New Testament that are more focused on the application of what you believe, not necessarily what it is that you believe. And, and so James here for us is, is kind of this idea of how do we take what we know, and what we've been learning and what we believe about Jesus Christ and his scriptures and his word, and how do we then live that out in our daily lives? Because James kind of just hits the ground running and, and, and is just throwing at us all kinds of commands. Do this, don't do this. Live this, don't live this. Be this, don't be this. And literally, of the 108 verses that are in the book of James, 54 of them, half of them are just commands. Just commands of how to live a Christian life. And so for us, knowing that we're in a culture right now that is... Um, challenging a lot in, in really what we believe about Christianity and not only what we believe about Christianity, but how we live it out. We felt that it was really good for us to kind of come to this and, and to, to let the scriptures just continue to inform our daily lives to help us as we are walking and living out what we believe about Christianity, what we believe about Jesus Christ, what we, what we truly think that he is is embodying in the person and work of Jesus and who he stands to be as the God-man. And so, so James helps us with this. And not only does James help us with how we live our daily lives, but James also helps us with how we do that in the midst of 
difficulty, in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of things going the way that you didn't necessarily see them going in your life, however that might look. And we know James, this is, this is really how he opens the book, and this is probably what he's actually most famous for, is this idea of living the Christian life amidst suffering, amidst trials. How, how do you count it joy when you meet various trials of various kinds? How do you live that out? How do you continue to have joy? How do you remain firm in your faith? How do you remain steadfast in your faith? What is faith? And how do we exercise that and play that out? That's probably what James is most known for. And I love that that's the fact that what he's most known for, because again, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who did not become a believer until after Jesus' resurrection. So someone who probably knew Jesus better then anybody who knew Jesus did not become a believer of Christ until after his resurrection. When he appeared to James and revealed himself to James, and it so drastically changed the trajectory of James's life at that point where he then became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But he doesn't open his letter, as we saw last week, with James, the half-brother of Jesus, the son of the Virgin Mary, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. That's not how he started the book. How he starts the book is, I'm James, a bondservant of Christ. Which is a humble way of saying, I don't matter. Jesus matters. My opinions don't matter. The opinions of Jesus matter. My thoughts don't matter. His thoughts matter. My will does not matter. His will is what matters. And I am willingly submitting myself to whatever it is that Jesus has for me because he must increase and I must decrease. It's all about Jesus, not about me. That's what James is saying when he opens his book with James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I am a slave of him. He is my master, even though most people know that he is my older brother. I'm his master. Man, it, it takes... Being a savior to change that viewpoint from a sibling, right? Because <laughs> most of us in the room have siblings, and it would take a lot for your sibling to convince you that you are the savior of the world, that you're King Jesus, that you are the Messiah, the chosen one, Son of God. It takes a lot to convince someone that. And Jesus was able to do that with his, his brother James. But James, having every maybe earthly right to receive good things as the brother of Jesus, as the leader of the first church in Jerusalem, opens his book with this idea of counting it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Because we know that James is stint in his duty at the church in his walk with Christ on earth as a believer, not just a brother, was short-lived because of his unjust stoning, because of his belief that his brother is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the chosen one. And so someone who we would probably look at and say, man, he has every right to, to literally just command anything from the people. Command anything from his family. Command anything from anybody in order to live a comfortable life does not live a comfortable life. 
And therefore, he's able to say what he says in, in, in preaching and sending this book out to the dispersion, to the, to the 12 tribes, to not only what he sees as the true 12 tribes of Israel, the Christians who have been scattered because of suffering, but he's telling them, reminding them that as they are meeting these trials and these sufferings, that they are going through this, that there's a specific reason for why you're experiencing it. And that it's not something that, that you should just see as happenstance. But that it is something that you should expect. It's not if you go through suffering or if you go through trials. But when you go through trials, how you are to consider those trials. And how it is that you arrive to that place. And so today we're, we're not necessarily going to dive into what kinds of trials. We're actually going to get to that in the weeks to come. But we're going to look at kind of the, the equation for what God is doing or how he is using trials to bring about joy. To bring about joy. Because I think that is one of the hardest things for us as believers to do or see and understand is how do we get to a place of joy, a type of satisfaction that cannot be robbed, when we are experiencing things that are uncomfortable, that are a, a type of suffering, that are things that we do not enjoy, or things that do not make us happy, or things that are not pleasing. It might be things that literally hurt emotionally, physically, spiritually, that it's just difficult to process and work through, and often, even at times, might cause you to doubt faith might cause you to doubt whether or not Jesus is who he says he is. And so that's my hope for us today, is that as we look at how, how God is working out suffering, and including that in a scripture like Romans 8.28, where he's working out all things for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purpose. So how is he working it all out for your good even though those things he's working out don't feel like they're good for you or enjoyable. And so we'll see this as we kind of break this down. So in James chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So one thing that I want to do here is I just kind of want to put the equation out there, if you will, of, of, of what the elements are that God is putting in front of us. So what he's first putting in front of us is that there are going to be trials. When you meet trials of various kinds, when you, not if, but when you meet trials of various kinds. So trials are going to be an aspect here. And we'll get into what trials are in the coming weeks. But trials, you, you can just understand, it's anything that you would probably not pray for. All right? Like it's, it's going to be something that, either, that, that puts a strain on your life. That could be financial burdens. That could be relational burdens. That could be health burdens. Uh, that could be 
included within that consequences of sin that you've committed that have caused suffering and trials or relational tension or whatever it looks like. Anything that does not, at the end of the day, make you look at it and go, that felt good. That felt good. Trials. For the trials, when you meet them, they're going to do it. They have a specific purpose. And the purpose is to test your faith. To test your faith. To determine when you meet these trials, what do you go to to rely on? What do you go to to rely on? What do you go to in order to try to receive encouragement or strength or understanding? Where do you run to when you meet these trials that come into your life? That is a test that we are experiencing. Because once our faith is tested, it then is going to produce something. So determining that testing of the faith will either lead into steadfastness, which could also be interpreted endurance or perseverance. We are able to get through whatever it is, depending on the resource that we run to when our faith is tested. And as that steadfastness and endurance, as we are enduring whatever it is that we are being tried and tested in, will on the end of it produce a completeness of us where we are lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. So that's really the goal is that we get to this place where we're perfect. Where we're perfect. That's what James is, is just talking about here. The end goal is perfection. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be like Jesus. Never have a bad thought. Never sin. In any and every circumstance and situation, always trust in Jesus. Always worship Jesus with every thought, word, and deed that you commit. That's the idea here, is the goal is to get to where you are complete, lacking in nothing. The only way to get there is through steadfastness, endurance, and perseverance. The only way to get there is by having your faith tested. The only way to have your faith tested is to go through trials of various kinds. That's the equation. Now, for anyone in this room, does that feel a little daunting? Because for me, it does. Like if I'm looking at this and thinking that I got to become perfect and the way to become perfect is that I have to endure and persevere and remain steadfast. And in remaining steadfast, I know that my faith is literally going to be tested and questioned at every single moment that every everything that I walk through in life, whether it's a difficult relationship or whether it's a financial crisis, or whatever it is, I'm going to answer the question. Am I running to Jesus or am I running to my own resources? Am I running to my own intellect? Am I running to my own affections? Am I running to my own worldviews? Am I running to whatever it is to try to pull from that in order to answer whatever the trial is that I'm walking through. And I, so I have to wonder in my mind every moment, am I remaining steadfast? Am I trusting Jesus at every trial? That seems daunting. What that looks like to me is that it's imperfect for me to ever to be perfect. 
And I think James is aware of that for what he says next in verse 5. If any of you lacks, what was the end goal? To be complete, lacking in nothing. He knows that at that moment, his listeners are going to think, well, this is impossible. Let's go check the next world religion that just got created. Let's go check out syncretism, which I kind of mentioned last week, which is just kind of the smorgasbord of religions because of the Roman road system and all the different beliefs being able to get to other cities and other um, areas to where it's like, you know what, let's, let's, let's believe in the goddess Artemis. You know what, Let, let's, let's believe in the god of sexuality because we're infertile. Let's believe in the god of this or that. Let's believe all these different things and because this one seems impossible to attain. So James, because as I said last week, he's kind of the one who just gets to the bottom line. He says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you just lacks, let him ask God. Trials, test your faith. When you're in the trial, what do you typically feel the most? I'm lacking something. I'm lacking finances. I'm lacking energy. I'm lacking knowledge. I don't have the answer for what someone just asked me. I'm lacking compassion because of this person who I disagree with, who I just want to argue with. I'm lacking. When you're lacking, let him ask God. Who gives generously to all without reproach? And it will be given him. Let him ask God, who gives generously? What he's basically saying there to us is when you find yourself lacking, ask God because God is willing and able to give you more than you need. More than you need for the trial. that He's going to give it to you generously. He's not just going to financially give you the status quo in order for it to get you to you know, get you to net zero. He wants to give generously. But let him ask in faith. The testing isn't coming back to whether or not you are going to use God as a genie in the bottle for all of your trials to then just get you caught up to where then at that point you can kind of just take back over let him ask in faith. The only prerequisite we have for faith is that we come to God saying, I'm unable. I'm unable. In all things, I'm unable. That's, that's why I'm coming to you, God, in faith that you are able. That you are able. That, at the end of the day, is really the means of faith. The purpose of faith is for us to get to a place where we understand in every aspect of our lives, I'm not enough. I don't have the answers. I don't have the energy. I don't have the works. I don't have the opportunities to forgive myself of the sins that I've committed. I don't have the opportunity to, to make a great life for myself. I don't have all of that effort or energy or means 
But God, you have determined the days of my life. You have allotted the boundaries in which I live in. You have allotted the relationships in which I steward. You have allotted for me the life that I have. And I am unable to sustain it or control it or increase it or do any of those things. At the end of the day, I am unable. The only thing I am able to do is send and send myself to hell. That's the only thing I can do and I can nail it. But in order to resolve my life, in order to go through trials and have faith that then allows me to persevere in trusting Jesus in every moment of my life so that I eventually become complete, lacking in nothing. The only reason I'm able to do any of that is because of your son, Jesus Christ, who came and did it for me, who did the work for me. Who lived the perfect life that I cannot live. And God wants to generously give us his son Jesus Christ to meet us in our trials. And it's through faith. But now here is another daunting task that we have here. Verse 6. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. With no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Does that create any anxiety for anybody in this room? If the answer is faith, have faith with no doubt. I mean, has there ever been a prayer that you prayed and on the back end of that prayer wondered, I don't know if God will do that. I see him do it for others. I just don't know if he'll do it for me. I, I, I see him in Scripture and what he's able to do, but yet my circumstances are different. I just don't know. I just, I've just not seen it in my life. And therefore, there's some doubt. And so then when we pray, we sort of pray these half-faith prayers. I know you're able, God. I just, I just hope maybe that you'll do it for me. And he kind of gives us a warning here about that. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. Now, it's not doubting, and I think this is the clear distinction that we need to make here. I think the reason why we doubt more so than than not is because we have, unfortunately, a negative view of how God answers prayers. Because sometimes... Or at least the way I see how God answers prayers is yes, no, or maybe. Or later. (laughs) Yes, no, or later. And sometimes for us, the best answer God can give us in prayer is no. But when we see multiple no's throughout our life, we then begin to process that as, well, I didn't have enough faith for him to say yes. I don't have enough faith for him to say later. 
But the reality is, is that the best thing for him to have said to me was no. For my testing of my faith and to produce steadfastness and to make me complete. Maybe I needed to suffer a no in order to come out on the other end of it in order to have joy. Joy. Because if he had answered yes, and in my process of growing in my relationship with Jesus, I was not at a place to steward that yes well, then it might have turned into a form of idolatry, or I might have abused that gift, whatever it might have been, or I might not have used that gift once he gave it to me for the purpose of, of the reason why he gave it to me. And I then perverted it and used it in a different way. For some of us, we need more no's. And we don't need to process those no's as God is not listening to me or that my faith is not enough. And therefore, I didn't pray what I should have prayed or how I should have prayed or what I ought to have prayed. And therefore, now the next time I ask, I'm nervous that he's just always going to say no. And he's just not going to do it for me. If that's the case, doubting's not the issue. The issue is we just don't understand how God answers prayer. And we need to, we need to reconcile that in our minds. We need to reconcile that in our hearts. For those who have kids, you understand this because at least if it feels this way in my house, we say no way more often than we say yes. I mean, it's just, it's just reality. We say no way more often than we say yes. And there are moments where we have our kids res respond to us, you are the worst. You're the worst. And, and I just have to sit there and receive it. I... I know I'm not, but I feel it, yes. <laughs> I want to give you all the things, but I know for your little heart, right now it's going to turn into idolatry. You can't handle it. And so it might be a later, or it might just be a flat no. And that's good for you. But I can see it in their minds, and I'm thinking of Ezra right now. I can see it in his mind that there have been times that when he comes and asks me for something, he's already a little defeated. To where he manipulates it a little bit. But he's a little defeated to where, why do you always say no? Well, I don't always say no. You had ice cream at 9 o'clock last night. Like I, I don't always say no, but you perceive it as that way. You need to get that corrected and resolved. Same with us. God is wanting to give us generously good gifts. But we need to process the no's. And I think the more that we see how God answers our prayers, both in the yeses and the no's and the laters, it does allow us to have our faith strengthened so that as we are praying, as we are talking to God, as we are making requests known, we're able to ask in faith with no doubting because we know that at the end of the day, 
He is going to answer the prayers in the way that he seems best fit for our lives, for our good, and for his glory, and for our enjoyment, and for our joy, and for God to be worshipped. Like at the end of the day, that is the greatest thing. That is what it is to be complete, is for us to be most satisfied in God. For us to be most satisfied in God. And it is in that place that God is most glorified. When we are most satisfied with Him. It reminds me of the story of the father in Mark 9. Where his son was demon possessed. And Jesus comes into the town and Jesus asks. You know, what's going on with this boy? And the father says, well, he's, since childhood, he's been possessed by this demon. And, and this guy knows a little bit about Jesus. There's a reason why he brought his boy there, because he sees the healing that's going on. But this guy just doesn't have enough understanding and knowledge about how Jesus operates and how he works and what he can do. To where this guy literally just says to Jesus, if you can, cast this demon out of my son. And Jesus, and it's hard because we see Scripture in black and white. You know, unless your Bible says Jesus' words in red. We mostly see Scripture in black and white. And it's hard for us to put ourselves in the, in the moment. And it kind of sounds like Jesus' response to this guy was like a jerk. What do you mean, if I can? I mean, like, it's emphatic in the original text. You're coming to me. Jesus, in the moment, literally tells the people, how long will I be with this faithless generation? That's what he says. Now, in our hypersensitive media culture, people are going to look at Jesus like a jerk. How could you say that? But Jesus is getting at something here. Faithless generation... What do you mean if I can? They don't know what he's capable of. They're just holding on to some gimmicky trick that maybe, just maybe, with enough resources, enough energy, and enough you know, tarot cards thrown out on the lot, that, that this Jesus will do something for my son that no one else was able to do. And Jesus says, you don't know me. And what I'm capable of. You would not say, if you can. You would say, in prayer, Jesus, do this. And then on the back end of it, reconcile whatever happens. Because Jesus is either going to say yes, no, or later. But in that moment, Jesus tells the man, I'm able. I'm Jesus. If you were to believe, I will do this. And the man literally says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. And honestly, I think that right there is the answer to our praying in faith when we doubt. Because if you see what is happening there, the guy is finally getting to an understanding that he is lacking and he is asking of the one who is able to give him the resource of what he is lacking. I believe, but even in my belief, 
I'm requesting resource from you to help my unbelief. Which is him getting to the place of understanding that belief comes from you, Lord. Faith comes from you, Lord. Faith is not something that I muster up within my own energy. Faith is not something that I was born with. But according to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, faith is a gift of God. And that God gives to everyone a measure of faith. And that that faith itself is not weak, is not limited, but is something that we are growing in to understand how it operates and how it works. If there is any doubting in our life, it is not due to the lack of faith that we have, but it's to the lack of using the faith that we have. It's that we don't tap into it. Is that we don't see that that faith is actually the only thing that allows us to understand that Jesus is able to answer whatever it is that we're walking through. To fix whatever it is that we're walking through. To remain steadfast, holding on to Him, anchoring ourselves to Him, that He's the only one to get us through whatever the trial is that we are experiencing. I believe, help my unbelief. And in that moment, that guy's faith was perfected and Jesus heals his son. I want you to skip down to verse 12. And I want you to see something here. Because this idea continues to get fleshed out on this idea of remaining. Steadfast. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. We want to get to this idea of being blessed. Who remains steadfast under trial. That is the one who under trial relies on the faith in Jesus Christ to strengthen him, to support him, to sustain him. Oftentimes, and this is from critics of Christianity, they say that Christianity is a crutch for those who are just weak in this world. It's, it's how they... It's how they deal with life, hoping that there's going to be something better in the long run because their allotment in life was just not good enough. And I'll say, amen. That is Christianity. Absolutely, Jesus Christ is a crutch because I am a broken human being that's infallible, that is not perfect, that cannot do anything to make a great life for myself. Now, I could, from an earthly perspective and worldview, make a great life for myself. If I wanted, I think with my degree in college that is communications, I could probably go and find another type of business and work my way and talk my way through business deals and make a much better living for my family than what ministry does and, and make a name for myself, do those things. But at the end of the day... It's not going to be a life that might, in biblical terms, be considered blessed. Blessed. So what does it mean to be blessed? Well, it's to understand that Jesus is what you need. And that he's all that you need. Blessed is the person who stands on their faith. That is, to know the great truths of Christianity about the power, authority, and goodness of our God. And a resolute cleaving to them in times of suffering. Like the blessed person is the one that 
experiences Jesus in every aspect of their life. That's a blessed person. Whether you're on the mountaintops and you're celebrating the joining of two people that are getting married and it's one of the most miraculous days of your life. That's it's a beautiful thing. Are we experiencing Jesus there in that moment? Are you experiencing Jesus at the graduation of, of college? Are you experiencing Jesus when you're first announcing a baby being born? Are you experiencing Jesus when you got a promotion at work? Those are huge things and those are typically things that people say, man, God is good. He's answered my prayer. But are we also experiencing Jesus when those things are not happening? And in those moments, we're able to say, even though I'm lacking and even though I'm not experiencing abundance and even though I'm not having anything going my way, I have Jesus. I have Jesus. And therefore, these things begin to fade. It's as if I don't, know, I don't need these things. It is only in that resolve that we find a life that is blessed, satisfied, or as we'll sing here in a moment, we're able to say, it is well. It is well with my soul when we are in good standing with our God and Savior, regardless of our circumstances. Here's one more thing, a sort of gauge for us whether or not we are in good standing or reconciled with Him. According to this passage, it says that God has promised trials for those who love Him. God has promised trials in this verse 12. Remain steadfast under trial for when He has stood the test, He will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. So here's what we know. All of this is being worked out and God has promised it. So God has promised trials. Your faith is going to be tested with the hopes that it will produce steadfastness as long as that faith being tested, you're clinging to Jesus. That produces steadfastness, endurance, perseverance. You're able to get through. Getting through allows you to eventually become complete, lacking in nothing. And in that, you will receive the crown of life. Blessed. You will be blessed for those who love Him. For those who love Him. Love is key here. And this isn't a love like you love tacos. All right, that's, that's like, that's Western superficial love, okay? We, we all have things we love that we don't love. We just really like them. This is a different type of love. This is getting down to the idea of treasure. Treasure. We've cheapened the meaning of love in Western culture because we say we love everything. This idea is one of treasure. For those who treasure God above all else, those who would be willing to say, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3. I'm going to read this Philippians 3 to you because I think this is just monumental in Paul understanding life and Jesus and where they fit and how he stewards the relationship with both of them. All right? 
Life in Jesus. So I want you to listen to this. And as I read this, I want you to, and I know a lot of times we say, don't interject yourself into the story of Scripture. Read the story of Scripture and let it preach to you in the moment. But I want you to interject things into this that would be contextual to where you are today. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Which means he's had to tell them multiple times. Over and over again. A lot of times we'll joke saying we just keep preaching the same thing, hoping that eventually you'll understand it. And like that's just the role of a preacher for like 50, 60 years is just to keep saying the same thing over and over and over through a few different angles of circumstances that you walk through in life, but we're, that's just our aim, is just to keep saying the same thing over and over and over. And this is what Paul is saying. Look out for the dogs. Now, for dog lovers, that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying, like, go, you know, adopt some dogs. He's, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. What he's saying here is that there are people who have come into the church who are considered evildoers, who are considered sinners, who are considered dogs, who are considered people that are not living out their lives according to the Spirit of Christ, but are living out their lives according to the Spirit of the flesh. There are people who have come into the church or the body of Christ who are saying, We know how to do this according to our life and according to our status, according to our resources, according to our worldviews. We can do this better than what you are preaching or what you are teaching or what you are bringing to us that Jesus taught himself according to the word of God. And he's saying, look out for this. Because he then gives a reason for why he would be the most qualified person To say that, here's what he says in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. What Paul has just said there is you think you're good, I'm better than you. You think you have status among the people, I have more status among the people. You think you have done enough works to earn the favor of God, I have done all of it. According to the law, I'm considered blameless. You think you have enough resources or means or wealth or finances? I'm considered a Pharisee, which meant they've robbed the people of their resources, have harbored it for themselves in order for them to then dictate how everything is going to flow and function when it comes to their Jewish law. He, has, he literally, in his position before Jesus showed up on the road to Damascus, Paul could do and say whatever he wanted with no accountability. He possessed privilege. He possessed power. He possessed anything that he wanted to be able to do in living a comfortable life. 
He could write law. He could do whatever he wanted. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Status, privilege, wealth, anything and everything that He wanted at His beck and call. He's lost all of it. And He's even admitting here that that was difficult. I suffered that change of life. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And I know you've heard me refer to this in the past, but this Greek word for rubbish literally means dung. Like you would talk about the dogs. I know a lot of you have to pick it up after your dogs whenever they go somewhere. He's looking at his status and his privilege and his way of life and his resources and his means and his popularity and his... Like, Paul studied under Rabbi Gamaliel, which meant that he was next in line to become the priest and bishop of all the Jewish people in their culture. And at that point, according to first century, means the Pope looks broke compared to what the Apostle Paul would have been able to do in Jewish culture. And he's saying, all of that wrapped up in one, I now see it as I see poop on the floor. It's rubbish. It's dung. It's worthless. In order that I may gain Christ. I may gain Christ. And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Not having one that I was able to muster up myself, but one that comes through faith in Christ. Christ alone. The righteousness from God, that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The crown of life. If it means through suffering, I get to gain Christ. If it means through death, I gain Christ. If it means through all of the worst possible scenarios that you can come up with that I would experience in life. If it means going through those things in order to receive Jesus, then all by all means, let me go through it. Like, this is the only person I know who then prays for it. Who prays for it. And then he goes on to say, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on, remaining steadfast. I press on to make it my own. I believe, help my unbelief. It is my own, but it's not yet my own. I'm still working this out. I'm still getting there because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own yet. But one thing I do when faith is tested, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal 
for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. He's saying, like, if you unbelieve, if you're still not working this out, don't worry. God's going to reveal it to you. Even if that is in the form of Him blinding you on the road, He will make it happen. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. What have we attained? Jesus. Let us hold true to Jesus. Brothers, join in imitating me. Imitating me. He's not saying be like me. He's saying be like me as I am trying to be like Jesus. As I'm straining toward Jesus. As I'm holding on to Jesus. Do the same thing. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He's getting to this idea of, of James saying, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who profess Jesus, but do not love Jesus. Look out for those, don't be like them. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Minds set on earthly things. When faith is tested, we have two options. Set our mind on Jesus, which is faith, or set our mind on earthly things, which is sin. That's it. Faith in Jesus, setting our mind there, or faith in flesh and sinning. Sinning. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We await. That's what as the faith. We're, we're waiting. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Who's doing the transforming? As we are being tested by faith. And as we are in that moment having the option to either trust in our flesh or trust in Jesus. As we trust in Jesus, as we rely on Him, He is transforming us to make us complete. Like His glorious body. By His power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Again, getting that idea of whether or not He is able. He's saying Jesus possesses all authority to subject all all things to himself. Yeah, we can trust him. We can trust him. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I think too many times Christianity is preached as a Pull up your bootstraps, tighten your tie, figure it out yourself on how you're going to muster up the energy and the, and the knowledge and the ability to be able to live a life that is like Jesus. Don't ever say anything negative. Don't ever do anything wrong. Don't ever X, Y, and Z. And so what we try to do is we try to train our flesh to stop doing bad things and start doing good things. And unfortunately, that's kind of the TED Talk Christianity right now. 
Stop being a bad person. Be a good person. And that's not what Christianity teaches. Christianity is not just this moralistic, therapeutic deism, which is is a fancy way of saying that, that you try to be better than the bad things that you do, and that becomes your God. As long as you're doing more good than bad, you're good. And God's going to eventually see that and say, well, yeah, the scales are tipped in your favor. And so now that they're tipped in your favor, well done, that good and faithful servant, you can come into heaven. That's the belief system of every other world religion that is out there. Work your way up. Christianity is not like that. Christianity is, there is one person who has already done all the work for you. And we are placing our life in his hands. Our broken selves in his hands. That we come to the end and we are humbled by the fact that we realize we are not enough. That there's no amount of books that you can read that will help you get there. There's no amount of money that you can give to charity that will help you get there. There's no amount of helping old ladies cross the road that will get you there. There's no right political party to affiliate with that will get you there. None of those things matter at the end of the day. When faith is tested, if we set our minds on earthly things, we do not establish citizenship in heaven. But when faith is tested and we establish our lives on Jesus Christ alone as the foundation for everything, transforming us to be complete in Him, that is what ultimately gives us the crown of life, which is a life of satisfaction, a life of joy, a life of of, um, just worship. And, And that never mentions that it gets rid of the trials. but just tells us that you will continue to receive trials. And to be honest with you, this one will hurt a little bit, but there's no example in Scripture as if the trials got easier or less as they matured in Christ. They will only get harder and more frequent as we continue holding on to our Savior. Josh and Ransford and myself, oftentimes we talk, whenever the church feels like it's in a good season, we're just waiting for it to drop. (laughs) Because we expect it. We expect it. And we just know that it's going to be good for us. Easy? No. Good for us? Absolutely. And I know right now for our people in this room, it is a difficult season. We have had conversations with so many of you right now that are just struggling. That are just struggling. And I'm not going to like name names, but I want you to be praying for these things that are going on. Praying for couples in this room who have been trying to get pregnant for years and haven't. And they're praying and they're doubting and they're help my unbelief. 
And we're just praying that God would say yes or later. But trusting that he's working it out for their good. We have families who are experiencing financial crisis that they've never experienced before. We have families experiencing sin that they're walking through in their lives that they've never experienced before, that they never thought that they would go through. And yet right now is an opportunity for them to cling to Jesus, just like anything and everything, to cling to Jesus for Him to complete Him to continue to move in your life and transform you to be more like Him rather than whatever this view of yourself was. We have people experiencing relational tension from friendships that have been broken. We have people experiencing job transitions that they weren't expecting to experience. I mean, we're... Even from a facility standpoint, we got bad news this week regarding this facility. We have no idea when the downstairs is going to be finished. So as, as we continue to grow and as we continue to have more kids, we're, we're going to have to figure it out or move to another location. We just don't know yet. We're putting that over into God's hands. We're praying, we're asking, but we don't know when downstairs is going to be finished. And that's something that is, is in some ways, in all the things I just talked about, that seems silly, but it's still an anxiety. Because at the same time, I'll walk through it and be like, well, we might have new families that come in and they're like, well, we would love to drop our kids off at a fully functional kids ministry in order for them to hear more about Jesus and so forth. And we're like, well, we can stick you in an office space over here. There's kind of a little conference room. The big kids are out in the hallway right now. And some of them might see that as a security issue or whatever. It looks. And we're just, I don't know what to tell you. We're doing the best we can. It's not ideal. But it's what we have. We just know that there are difficult things going on. And what we need more than anything right now is something that is hard to hear. James 5, verse 7. Be patient. Be patient. James knows. You got trials that are coming your way if you're not already in them right now. And I want you to know that God's working out those trials for your good and His glory. And as He's working them out, and as you're remaining steadfast, and as you're holding on to Him, and as you're waiting for the result, the, the, the resu- the, as you're waiting for the completion of whatever trial it is that you're walking through, I want you to be patient until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. Settle your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another. Don't blame one another for what's going on. So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And there you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassion, compassionate and merciful. Trials. Testing of your faith. Producing steadfast. God's doing all of this. Producing steadfastness. 
which is going to ultimately lead to you being complete, lacking in nothing. For those who love him, for those who love him, love is key there. You, you can use God as Savior for forgiveness of sins and still not love him. You can, you can use God as like a doctor feel or a counselor or a TED Talk or a podcast to gain wisdom or advice and still not love him. You can, you can use God in submission as a slave because he is Lord and possesses all authority and power because you're fearful of him and still don't love him. And if for any of those things to ring true in your life, you're gauge this possibly considered one of those dogs. That's hard. God works out all things for the good of those who love him. God will give the crown of life to the ones who love him. God is all those things, but if all those things did not produce love in you and affection for him, but rather you're just using him as, as, as some type of genie, then you don't love him. And that's where maybe I would, I would spend some time working it out in your life. God, help my affections. Help my treasure. Because kind of like Paul, he was good up until he realized that everything he had was amounts to nothing for the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. That's basically saying, like, I, I love nothing else more than I love Jesus. That's why Jesus uses some of that hard language. It's, you need to hate your mother and hate your father, hate your brother and sister, and come follow me. Now, he's not literally preaching and telling you that you need to hate what he's saying is, is you need to love me more than anything else that is earthly. And again, I think that comes down to a, a firm foundation of faith. Of faith. God giving us that ability to love him. And asking it. If you feel like you're lacking in your love of God right now, the only place I can tell you to go is God and ask him for it. God, I don't love you. I'm not in a relationship with you. But through your son, Jesus, you can forgive me of that. And through your son, Jesus Christ, you can grant me the faith that I need to believe. Help my unbelief. You can grant me forgiveness for the sins that are keeping me from a relationship with you. And you can then continue working out things in my life to complete me. And to give me a crown of life one day. And to be able to provide for me all the satisfaction that I need to worship you and to see you as who you are. And there might be some trials that I have to walk through to experience all that and to know all that. And I will welcome them. I will welcome them. Be patient because our Lord is compassionate and merciful. He's not doing this. He's not sending trials because he's as Ephesians 6 would say, a father who provokes his children to anger. 
He's not trying to provoke us to anger because of our trials. He's disciplining us to mature us and to see that He is the only thing that we need and should desire. I love what C.S. Lewis said one time, that if you aim for the world, then you will miss heaven. But if you aim for heaven, you will also get the world thrown in. And this is what we're really after right here. We aim for Jesus. And I'm not saying this in like a name it, claim it thing. But if we aim for Jesus, he will give you the desires of your heart. He will. He will. Because the more we aim for Jesus, our wills will align with his. And we'll then pray for more things that align with his will to where he will generously give us those things. Because they make him look good. That's the goal. They make him look good. It makes much of Jesus. The worst thing for God to do would say yes to all the immature prayers. Honestly. The worst thing God could do is just to give us the desires of our sinful hearts. But the more we become like Jesus and the more he makes us like Jesus and we pray for those correct prayers. And even as you're stumbling through that, remember in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit When you don't know what to pray for as you ought, He intercedes for you on behalf. And He prays correct prayers. I just call it the shot block role of the Holy Spirit. You pray and He shot blocks it and then He tells God what you need. And then God grants it to you and says yes or later. And in all of that, we count it joy. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For God's testing your faith to produce steadfastness so that you are complete, lacking in nothing. Hold on to that truth. Hold on to that truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you are doing. We thank you because it's nothing that we do. It is something that we receive. We thank you because we know that it's nothing that we are able of, but it's only what you are able to do. God, we cannot mature ourselves. We cannot improve ourselves. Only you can do that. And as difficult as it is, one of the primary means that you use is suffering, trials, tribulations, tests. And it is through those that you are working out our lives to see you and treasure you above all else. And so, Father, I know that we do not want to pray for trials or suffering, or difficult seasons. But I also know, God, that being on this earth for 34 years and in ministry now for almost 15 years, I can look back on every trial, every suffering, every moment, 
And I can now see how you worked those things out for our good. It was not easy. It was not pleasant. But I can see. I can see you at work. And because of that, I trust. I trust in your ability. I trust in what you are going to be doing in the future as we continue to walk through suffering and trials. And I just hold on to you, Jesus. I hold on to you. And I pray in that moment when our faith is tested that each person in this room, instead of running to earthly things, instead of running to their own merit, their own wills, their own work, they will run to you and bow down and submit and worship and trust that you are working it out. And that there they can remain steadfast. They can endure. They can be patient. And eventually satisfied. Satisfied. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at